when I am really interested in something, I, I get super focused on that. And I would hear the underground hovering across the line. I would mimic that sound. I think in pictures, I don't think in language. What you probably don't know is that my brain is different than yours. Because I'm autistic. Welcome to the Drumbeat Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast about autism put together by a team of professionals working with autistic young people, their parents and their schools within the Lewisham area. In this week's episode, you will hear a fantastic interview with Joanna Lindbergh, focusing on her collection of poems called The Autistic Alice. Hello and welcome. My name is Charlie, and you're listening to episode seven of the Drumbeat Autism Outreach podcast with special guest Joanne Lindbergh. In September 2021, regular co-host Pete and I had the opportunity to attend a presentation which Joanne made at the Beyond Stereotypes conference, where she spoke about her 2017 book of poetry called The Autistic Alice. We were so impressed by what we saw and heard that I emailed her and she very kindly agreed to be interviewed for our podcast. Joanne is a writer who has published a number of books, including poetry collections for adults and children and two memoirs. Joanne received an autism diagnosis in adulthood. We invited Joanne onto the podcast to read some poems from her book, The Autistic Alice, and using these as a starting point, she discusses her own experiences as a girl and young woman growing up with undiagnosed autism. As Joanne discusses in this episode, she often identified with Alice from Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass as a logical and curious child adrift in an arbitrary world. In this episode, we explore many aspects of autism with Joanne, including masking, developing different identities and autistic joy. As there are no introductions at the start of this interview, I'll just let you know whose voices you're about to hear. In addition to our guest Joanne, the first voice you will hear is that of Sonia Gannon, our Drumbeat Autism Outreach lead teacher, who has appeared on many previous episodes. After a few minutes, you will also hear the voice of my regular podcast co-host, Pete Black. You won't be hearing me during this interview this week, but I will join you again at the end of the episode for this week's recommendations and with a reminder of where you can find even more information about Drumbeat Autism Outreach. But until then, I'm going to hand you over to Sonia and Pete for this excellent interview with the wonderful Joanne Lindbergh. So first of all, Joanne, I I want to introduce your work, your book of poetry that we're going to be focusing on um, for this podcast interview and it's um, entitled The Autistic Alice based on poems that you've written I guess reprocessing your childhood with the understanding and knowledge of your autism diagnosis using the Alice in Wonderland and Alice through the looking glass um, kind of original stories I know there's been Disney films, a theatre show, a modern film, um, so many reimaginings of Alice. And I wondered why you were drawn to Alice in Wonderland in the first place. I think because it, I chose it to look at my childhood through because it was something I remember being interested in and relating to my whole life. So it felt sort of authentic to me and authentic, more importantly, to that child me. Because one of my earliest memories 
related to books is of asking my mum to take down the copy of this book called The Autistic Alice off the top of the ladder axe. We're talking about the 1970s because I really liked the pictures on it. And it's an edition of the book with lots of annotations down the side, which obviously I couldn't read at three. But I loved the pictures. I asked mum what the stories were all about. And once I could read them, I read them and reread them. So I, I thought that there was something about not just Carol's Alice, but also Tenniel's Alice, that little girl with that very, you know, unblinking look that she has, who's terribly logical, that I related to. So many children we've worked with have been able to describe themselves as being in an environment that's kind of unfamiliar to them or that mm. they're on the sidelines or that they're that everybody understands the rules of the game that that they're not getting so there's a real strong um feeling of alienation that that many children seem to be able yes, to articulate yes and also everyone else in these worlds is arbitrary alex alice is the only reasonable person she's just trying to figure things out and suddenly someone will be angry with her for no apparent reason which is very much how it feels to be an autistic child you know, you don't see the boundaries are there and then you cross them and someone yells at you out of nowhere and you don't know what's going on. Yeah, I, I mm. think there's a quote, isn't it? Alice, Alice says, it would be nice if something would make sense for a change. Exactly, and, yes. Yeah. So would you like to read us one of your poems um, from the book? Yes, um, I mean, this poem relates to what I'm talking about. It's called Big Alice. And if you remember in the first book in, in Alice in Wonderland, she gets big and then she gets small sometimes without warning. And the Alice in this poem is about seven years old. Without meaning to or even knowing, Alice has grown huge again. It starts with her name in an angry voice. Look what you've done. Since when were her hands so far away? One stuck to her face and covered in ink. The other's on the desk by the upended carton with milk seeping out. Don't just look at it, pick it up. Alice does, but something's wet somewhere. She's got it all over her skirts. Alice finds her feet and stands on them. The scrape of her chair is thunderous and rude. Go to the office, get a change of clothes. Eyes watch her thudding damply to the door, the dumbest Alice lump they ever saw. I find that poem heartbreaking. I know. I was going to say, it's very hard for parents. So when I first read it, I was in a small poetry group and one of the people in the group has a child who's autistic. And she found that poem really hard. She found it almost too negative. I mean, from the point, point of view of having lived through it, it is hard, but also I'm kind of looking from above and saying, well, this is what happened. But now that I have a child myself who's not autistic, you know, I can understand how that would hit. Yeah. It's yeah. really powerful. Really powerful. But uh, myself and Pete were talking about this poem. I think it, for, for both of us, it was one that was we found really powerful. But especially about looking back at your childhood self and, and, and trying to paint the picture of what school life was like for you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the temptation would have been to make it coherent in retrospect, but it wasn't. 
but it wasn't and that, and that enabled me to sort of show those things that because my proprioception isn't great my body kind of gets away from me still does so it's just like oh suddenly that's that's overturned and my hand is there and my foot is there and I don't know what's happened you know and, I, and I'm being treated as if I'm responsible but actually I don't know what happened and I've actually re realized that uh, there was a particular teacher I had in that year I think it would now be year two and a lot of my memories of being yelled at from primary school come from her and I just occurred to me recently I thought oh god she really didn't like me did she <laughs> Because at the time, you know, the teacher's the teacher. You don't register just how unreasonably horrible they're being. Do you know what? It's such a breath of fresh air hearing you say that. <laughs> because I think that, yeah, I mean, I certainly, um, I would imagine like you, I think that I had that realisation as an adult where it was it was very much the case of, actually, this, this teacher's just a very unreasonable person this is nothing mm. to do with there is no accommodation here made for the fact that I'm a child for a start and yeah. um and for the fact that I'm I'm learning and I'm I'm making mistakes the way that that, that, that a child would was, was that written from a, a direct experience that you had it, it, it's a kind of what what's the word uh composite okay I mean there, there were things like I remember the milks when the milk uh went on the desk that 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 day I licked it off the desk and she was furious with me so I, I didn't put that in. And also, it was another day I had to get a change of clothes when I fell in backwards into a puddle. Oh, crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> or some, I can't remember if I fell backwards or somebody pushed me. It could have been either. But, but I just re remember um, going to the nurse's office or the office and that sense of shame. Mm. That's, that, you know, that, that sense of physical physical object shame is really powerful yeah from the poem but also as well you know the line where you say finds her feet and stands mm. on them that the sensory experience of that for me is so powerful you know to find her feet and then to stand on them like they're an external object mm. really helps you to understand how physically discombobulated she is and how she has to draw it all together yeah exactly and and it's still like that and I didn't realize you know quite how I mean I knew I did I wasn't the most physically intelligent person in the world but I didn't know how hard I found it to inhabit my body till a few years ago when I did um Alexander technique and I've got much better but yes I was I experienced myself and sometimes still do as in bits but I didn't know that I did because how would you know that not everyone does that is, is having the same experience yeah there. Yeah, that's that's the really interesting point in, in all of this, isn't it? Is that kind of that sort of retrospective look back in <clears throat> in saying, well, I th I thought this was just I thought this was just how everyone presented, or I wasn't aware that that this was um, in some in some way uh, standing out or 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 difficult or seen as unacceptable. Um, mm. This is me as a this this is me as an as a child in my in my essence, and I'm being shouted down. I'm being told off for um, for existing in in a Pretty way. Much, and, yeah. and I, I think the bit that that really struck me was was uh, it kind of correlates with with what Sonia was saying about the the finding your feet bit. I really like the bit at the start of the poem where you you sort of say, "Well, how did my hands get so far away from each other?" or words to that effect. Yeah. Um, and that just really highlights that you know the fact that there were all these um 
proprioceptive kind of issues and things that you were that you were dealing with um but you didn't have the language to be able to say no. I'm, I'm dealing with this difficulty please understand my difference you yes know? yeah I mean I, I didn't have you know my I I've got issues with with my body schema I'm dyspraxic sorry miss you know yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I didn't realize as well that there then came a a diagnosed syndrome called Alice in Wonder syndrome yes about, that, that there is yeah that's Which when you experience, experience things as getting bigger yeah. or smaller. It's a perceptive yes. thing. Yeah. Which, of course, is is part of those difficulties with proprioception, isn't it? And yes. not being able to judge distance and the size of a doorway. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yes, but, but also being huge is a, suddenly is about, of course, being suddenly very conspicuous and also not knowing where where you end so you don't grade movement properly. Yeah, so children often are described as being overly physical or aggressive towards other children mm. or um, too boisterous, you know, bull in a china shop kind of uh, description yeah. of a child. And, and often it is this, you know, tremendous difficulty with, with their proprioception and their vestibular sensory. Yes, I mean, I was very anxious when I was a, a new mother because I became aware of how difficult I found it to grade movement and how undexterous I was. And I had this tiny person and it was really quite scary. And then, I, I mean, my, my late mum, I think, had at least some traits. And I remember her being over vigorous with me when I was small and hurting me, like pulling my bunches and they'd really, really hurt. And I think now that she also had trouble grading movement. But um, she wouldn't admit it, though. <laughs> <laughs> So do you think, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been so many hypotheses about Alice. And, and I've read about the Cheshire cat being schizophrenic or um, the, uh, is it the white rabbit they think of as having generalised anxiety disorder or, you know, and I'm, I can't remember what they've diagnosed Alice with. But there is a, there's great fun to be had, isn't there? And a bit, and a bit of an obsession with diagnosing posthumously yeah. or, you know, taking characters from literature and diagnosing those characters with a disorder or a difference or a yeah. uh, a type of neurology. I mean, the thing is with, um, you know, a work of art as great as the Alice books is it can take support any number of interpretations and that's why it's lasted as long as it had and become so pervasive. I, I mean, I think this partly occurred to me because, of course, one mustn't posthumously diagnose people, but Lewis Carroll... <laughs> Yeah. is one of those people you might posthumously diagnose if you could. And, you know, we talk a lot about the real Alice that he was telling the story to, Alice Little. But possibly Alice is Lewis Carroll. That's interesting. But yeah. as a little girl. We do know that autistic people have always existed just yes. because we hadn't created the word. You know, it's interesting to see that we can see the possibility of someone being autistic or a character being autistic when we look back and reflect. Yeah, I, I wanted to study logic because of Lewis Carroll and I was disappointed to find out how bad I was at it. <laughs> I'm not actually... Um, I mean, my my numerous is okay, but it's nothing... nothing it's not genius ability. Well, uh, it, it, it's not even particularly above average ability, I don't think. <laughs> Okay, shall we go on to another poem? Yes, certainly. So this next one is called Alice's Face. 
It's a piece of clothing she can't figure out, can't line up or fasten. It's uncomfortable. She fidgets with it and without thinking casts it off, forgets that people can see faces even when they're empty. Their voices come from far away, apologising to the face, asking it what the matter is, what it finds so funny, what it thinks they've done to it. They suppose it's Alice they're addressing, but it's just her cast-off face. No more aware of its own motion than the unarak a smaller Alice let fly off a pier. The purple unarak the wind filled out for long enough to make someone mistake it for a child and swim out to her rescue. Alice remembers how she looked down from the pier to watch the nice man fetch her unarak. That's in, again, an extraordinarily visual way of describing, I guess, what what we would call masking. It's partly masking and partly just um, troubles with affect, mm. or rather the misinterpretation of affect, because I've realised that um, unless I do mask, <clears throat> people will read my face in a very inaccurate, sometimes hostile way but I do think again I, I do think the sort of flat affect thing I do think there's some issue with our nervous impulses or muscle tone or something yeah that that that, that comes out as either the wrong micro expression or a micro expression one beat too late or not being able to make it and it's interpreted as something that's going on inside and actually it isn't it really is just a face not behaving the way other people's faces behave I completely, completely relate to that. I love mm. that you. I love that you said you said that because I've never heard that said before. I don't think, um, <clears throat> not out loud um, from from an autistic person. I, mm. I've I've not heard that, but I I strongly relate to that myself. And I think that um, there are so many aspects that you you certainly as a as a child I felt that I had to learn you know and learn very well um, in order to to kind of mimic what was what mm. was going on around me and to mimic the um, the interactions of uh, people that I would be conversing with and stuff like that people that I would meet along the way I wonder how much of the the kind of masking looking back now at your childhood how how much <laughs> if you can quantify it and you probably can't quantify it but but was masking a, a really really constant thing for you or was it a subconscious thing looking back? I don't think I did mask very much Interesting. as a child and I yeah. think that's probably why I had the kind of responses you saw in the last poem right right it was something that came much later mm. yeah when you learn what you're meant to do yes yeah. yeah, and I remember, it, I mean, it was really was almost a conscious thing. Um, after university, actually, I thought people aren't responding well to me. I'd better change myself. I mean, having done a few things to try and fit in, but done them very clumsily, I thought I must work on myself. Was that a, was that a positive, positive process or a negative process for you? Well, I thought Joel? it was going to be positive at first, and, mo and in, in a lot of ways it has been, but when I got to the point where I sought a diagnosis, I realised, and I was 42 by that point, I thought for the last 20 plus years, I've been trying to hit these goalposts, which are moving further and further and further and further away. Because I just think if I just do this, 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 then I'll be a real, you know, like Pinocchio being a real boy, then I'll be a, 
proper person. Yeah. And then I just thought, it's not going to effing happen, is it? Mm. And maybe, <laughs> and maybe I'm, er I'm erasing some good things in the process. Maybe it's not about being a rubbish version of normal. Maybe it's about being the better version of me, whatever that might mean. I was, I was talking to a young woman uh, we're working with at the moment, and she was telling me about the different versions of herself mm. that she is in with different people. And so I, we, we were working on her sense of her own identity. Mm. So I asked her, what's the you when you're most comfortable? And, and she just said, I don't know. I'd... And I, I think that's probably the hardest it to is, work yeah. out. Yeah. For anyone, I suppose, at, at a tender age. But Yeah, I mean, I, I had created personas before. They just weren't very successful ones. <laughs> so, you know, I then started creating one that was based on what people would respond well to rather than what I thought might be interesting. Yes. Was there was yes. there a lot of pain in kind of getting it kind of getting it wrong? Um if you like, you know, and, and trying and testing different different personas and realizing, oh actually this is this this is not the this is this is not the acceptable or required persona that I thought it that I thought it was. Oh it's hugely mm. it's hugely painful. You mm. know, you experience a lot of rejection and ostracism and mockery and all sorts of things i mean not i mean mostly it's not you know particularly dramatic it's just you you know that people are pulling away from you you can feel it because of course you know it isn't that one can't feel what's going on with people i know some autistic people say they can't and that's their experience too but i can you know i can feel when someone's pulling back i think that's a discussion that we have an, an awful lot with regards to um to, to empathy and and this this kind of myth that autistic people can't feel or can't feel on behalf of others um, and uh, it's great to, you know it's great to hear you and we've heard so many other autistic mm. people saying you know that, that feelings are not feelings are not a problem here no, you know, it, we, it, they're, they're not a problem at all it's figuring out how to get yourself to how to arrange yourself in such a way as to respond to it appropriately right. Right. Which is hard. How, you know, I don't know what my face is doing. It's obviously doing the wrong thing. I better, you know, mm. and sometimes you're making adjustments within a conversation, within a sentence. You're mm. consciously adjusting. Am I sitting too far forward? Am I sitting too too far back? Have I remembered eye contact? Am I, is my eye wandering away? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should I change the tone of my voice? Because even people quite close to you can miss, I mean, well, I think one should normalise that. I think non-autistic people misread each other all the time. There wouldn't be any fiction if they didn't really, would there? But um, just that constant sense that the problem is located in you and that you have to fix it by constantly monitoring yourself mm -hmm. and the other person and what's going on between you. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of conversations I, I have in the course of a day or a week that take much more out of me than I get out of them. It just, it sounds utterly exhausting. It is. Yeah. It, it, it is. And um, um, I, I, re I, I used to think parties were a good thing. And then I realised, honestly, when I come out of a party, I think, well, I survived that one. I did that party as if it were an exam. <laughs> I know with my son, it's, mm. the, it's the going over conversations yeah. or actions. Yeah. Have you heard the expression social hangover? No, but that's, that's great. Excellent. It yes. does leave you feeling quite 
quite beaten up after us sometimes and that's nothing to do with the company that you're in mm. you know let's make let's make this, this this clear that you know parties are parties and social gatherings are there because most people enjoy them and yes. um and there are enjoyable elements even for autistic people there can be enjoyable elements be, to yes. to parties and to social gatherings but i i think that that point that you make about the the, the toll you know and the after effect on um, on a person who's then having to kind of decompress after you know a party sort of situation, um, and all the I, I don't know if you I don't know if you experience kind of that sort of paranoia or second guessing yourself, you know. Oh as... God, all, 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 all the time. Yes, I mean I, I've felt better since since I've realised that I've looked around. And I thought, is everyone else getting everything right? Is everyone else getting me right? Is no, no, that they're, they're not. I'm just one. Um, stumbling person amongst stumbling people <laughs> I, I remember explaining to my son he, he'd heard this expression mind reading yeah and I, I think he was in his mid-teens and he he actually thought that us non-autistic people could literally read what was going on in other people's well of course minds. you'd think that wouldn't you i mean i think we, we we we've almost been gaslit as a community for yeah. ages it's like oh we can all do this thing and yeah. you can't but if you actually step back and look at how people interact and how they behave it's pretty bleeding obvious they can't <laughs> <laughs> he was so relieved when i told yes. him it wasn't possible. I think yes. we have to translate ourselves and translate people in a way that most people don't, in a wholesale way. But yeah, people still miss each other all the time, don't they? With the best will in the world. I think sometimes, and I, I, I please correct me if, if I, <laughs> I'm not speaking for you at all, Joanne, I'm speaking just for myself, really, but I, I certainly feel that, that some, sometimes I maybe assume way too much responsibility for mm. a, a situation that's actually everyone's responsibility and, um, you know, kind of making sure that, that, that I've said exactly the right thing or that people, you know, understand exactly where I'm coming from and I've pleased everyone in, in, in that room is if, if I don't do that, then I fall short rather yeah. than being able to say, Oh, well, I'm just a human being, you know, and, and I'm a struggling human being and I'm f in a room full of struggling mm. human beings. And actually, you know, I, I, I guess I really struggle with that, having that perspective and not, not, taking, not taking all the responsibility on as my own. Um, I don't know if, you, if that Yeah, if, if I, I that have resonates. that too. I think mm. really it's only in the, the last few years that I'm starting to do that. And I don't know if, and this wouldn't be speaking for you, I don't know if perimenopause helps. I think women as a whole, <laughs> we become a lot less um, inclined to uh, placate everyone. Uh, that certainly applies to me. I totally yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you give less Fs, I read. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You do. You give, spent you, them all. Exactly. You have, you have spent all your Fs. Yes. So I think it's partly my my particular stage of life, my particular female stage of life. But I am learning not to do that. But I think if 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 you're brought up like Big Alice to be constantly on the alert for things you've done wrong, of course you're going to take responsibility if the room falls apart or the temperature in the room goes cold or whatever. Of course you're going to think it's you. But that overly empathic kind of response, you know, that sort of absorbs all the emotion mm. in the room. Yeah. Yeah, and my son sort of wishes I wouldn't. Yeah, he says, "God, it's like my feelings go straight into you." Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> because I have to remind myself that there's that boundary there. 
Mm. Especially now that he's an adult, now that he's 18. You know, he's not asking me to be his sponge. But my mother noticed that about me, actually. When I was uh, quite young, she said you seemed to be some kind of human sponge. Do you know, I have to say at this point that um, I really want to thank you for reclaiming the word weird. Oh. So in your collection of um, essays, mm. is it to, Letters to, letters my, to weird... my Weird Sisters? Yes. I was so happy that you called it that because um, the kids we work with are often called weird by peers. And I sometimes say to them, actually, what's wrong with that? You know, Nothing. Exactly. And, and actually embracing it because that difference is often what makes that person unique and special exactly. and glorious. Um, there, uh, Fergus Murray, who's Dinah Murray's son, He's he's sort of got me on board a bit, and we're we're trying to establish an annual Weird Pride Day. Yes, I saw the hashtag <laughs> of that actually. Yeah, fantastic. You know, we have a capacity to get a lot out of really small things that most people either never had or seem to grow out of. Yes, and I don't th- yes. I don't think I don't think that's something to mock. It's something to celebrate. One hundred percent. Yeah. Could 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 you possibly unpack that a little bit more with regards to your own personal artistic joy? Um, wh- where where you find those elements of? of I really real joy? love color. I have a very powerful response to color. Yeah. It's not quite synesthetic, although a certain shade of green is sour. But and mm. certain colors I associate very much with certain emotions. But. Um, if I see something arranged in a spectrum, it always makes me happy. I will always. Mm-hmm. I think I talk in the book about liking going John Lewis because they have the towels in a spectrum arrangement, and that just really makes me happy every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I can just following on from that as well. I, I watched a, a video of, of you on YouTube, um, and you were explaining um, about one of one of the essays that you wrote and um it was called the shape of the problem i think oh yes um and the fact that aesthetically you know to to, to sort of look at it you've got um a small amount of actual text and then footnotes upon footnotes um the footnotes being the majority of the, mm. the kind of actual body of work um and you you were sort of speaking about the actual i think you mentioned the the pleasure that you would get not just from the writing and the content itself, but also how it appears on the page and the, mm. the aesthetic that can surround um, how, how text is presented. And yeah, stuff. yeah. Mm. I think a, a lot of poets are autistic. And I think that's one of the many good reasons for that. It's partly the shape and part, partly the sound, those, those aspects of language that are non-pragmatic and aesthetic, in fact, not just not pragmatic, specifically aesthetic that poetry totally engages with. But I love that. I think I I read a line and I had to write it down because I just thought it was so beautifully expressed. And you said you were tracing a humanising line through the spine of human existence. That line is pure poetry. Oh, where did I say that? (laughs) It was in an essay about... Oh, I don't know. I've read so much of what you've written now, but it was about looking at the work that... um, Steve Silberman did a neuro trial. Oh, right, yes. And continuing to look yes. at characters from history. And... You just said that, I thought, oh, that's really good. Did I write that? <laughs> it's really good, yeah. <laughs> I loved it. So shall we listen to another poem of yours? Yes. Um, we're sort of moving forward in time now. This is Queen Alice. She did not expect to be a queen so soon or ever. 
but somehow there is a crown upon her head, and Alice must act up to it. The Red Queen has left instructions. Keep washed, keep combed, wear what women like you wear, secure a partner for the dance, remember eye contact. Smile when they smile, when they look sad, look sad. Alice stands up straight, she moves her face until it feels like someone else's. Then she hits the high street, smiling, practising her singing queenly voice on all the shop assistants. With time it rings less false, with years she even fools herself. She finds a king, they claim their castle, which they decorate and fill with white goods. She births a little prince, wheels him to queenly coffee mornings, where she talks, like other queens, of kings and princes, high street clothes, holidays and in-laws, castle decoration, the purchasing and breakdown of white goods. She's done well. People meet a queenly face and think it's really hers, and after so long she thinks they might be right, and wonders if she only dreamed that other awkward one. But if she did, who's that in the looking-glass? Whose is that unsmiling, sideways stare? That one's so funny as well. It's so sharp. The little fairy tale with the white goods that's happening through it. Yeah, because I always wanted to, I always thought, like a lot of people, that, you know, coming from a conventional background as well, that one of the markers of me having made it as a real person would be, I get married, I have a kid, I have a house. Tick, tick, tick. Yeah, tick, 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 exactly. Boxes ticked. My, My life looks like everyone else. I mean, I found... I mean, yes, motherhood was difficult, but, and I think other, there are some other autistic women who agree with me, it's actually a really good disguise as well. You've got cover. You have got cover. You have got cover. And that line, she moves her face until it feels like someone else's. Yeah, that's still something I do sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll arrange my features, like, uh, um, okay, I'm about to step on the bus... I've got to, there'll be a bus driver, I've got to look right, I've got to remember the right words to say. And it's got to be the right present, presently, I mustn't go pleasantly, I've got to go, I must say, um, I need a ticket to this, not thank you very much, or happy birthday. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you find yourself having to, having to rehearse the, the transitions between um, the, those different situations, i.e. Getting, like getting on the bus, um, you have that one initial five second interaction with the bus driver and then you know that you've got to turn around 90 degrees to walk down the bus and you're going to have eyes on you yes there. Exactly. i changed my facial expression then exactly because i i can't look at people like i'm expecting them to interact with me yes but yeah. i had the weirdest thing happen to me the other day actually i went to see my cousin's daughter in a musical because she's um her first professional engagement and it was a studio production and sometimes they would sit among the audience and the chair I was sitting in was next to a block where sometimes some, one of them would sit down during a, a song and occasionally they would turn to you as if, you know, you were next to them on a park bench or you were their interlocutor. And not only is that bloody weird when someone does that in character <laughs> and you're in the audience and you're thinking, what do I do? I mean, I wouldn't know what to do anyway, even if, they, if this were to- all these layers weren't there. If it's someone you babysat doing it. Right. <laughs> In character. Uh, no, I, I think it was weird for her as well. She said, oh, when I saw you were sitting in that particular chair, I thought, oh, great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you, you don't know, even if it's an actor that you don't otherwise know, 
and they look at you, you're thinking, are you cueing me to respond? Mm. Or should I look at you as if you're behind glass? Mm. But I thought that's a kind of enhanced version of how it always feels, actually. Yeah. How are you expecting me to look at you? So I, so I quite, I, I quite often learned, you know, the Queen Alice response is to go around and do what women are generally expected to do, and where betide them if they don't, which is a kind of background simper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just go back to just um, the the elements of the uh, desires that you were talking about, the kind of conventional desires that you were talking about with regards mm. to um, your your life, and I guess. Um, having milestones to to almost reinforce the fact that you've made it or you're yes. become you're becoming you're becoming more sort of a, a fully fledged you know not that you're not a few, fully fledged human at all you know mm. but but having this developmental kind of path where those desires did you feel that the desires like to to you mentioned kind of um, owning white goods and you know getting a house and getting it nice and um, and stuff which are which are all kind of so i guess sort of fairly fairly standard goals throughout life um mm. were these desires based on just what you kind of knew you should want or were these really i mean did you uh, did you have other things that you just thought were well these are completely wacky desires that i've mm. got to get rid of because they're you know for whatever reason, I might just associate them with, with you know, or society might just associate them with childhood. I, I think, you know, I genuinely wanted to get married and had a kid because I came from a family that was, I mean, we we had our issues, but that was what I knew worked. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. neither my parents nor their siblings had divorced. We had very child-centred, loving Jewish family. And so, of course, I, I wanted to recreate that. But also, I wonder what it would have been like to grow up in a world where you knew that there were other kinds of families and other kinds of arrangements. Mm. And not to have felt so much a failure until I got it. And, um, and I think I tried to push my social development ahead of where it needed to go when I was young because I thought I mustn't be left behind. Was, was there a huge element then of having to do that sort of thing on for the sake of other people or was your desire really you know i'm going to i'm going to work on my 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 social presentation or whatever term you wish to call it because this is something i really i really want to do or i think both i mean i yeah. i i mean this is what i'm trying to sort of sort out in in the stuff that i've been writing I think it genuinely matters to me how I make people feel, mm. you know, and that doesn't make me a better or worse person. It's just something that matters to me. I think those genuinely are my values. So I don't begrudge the work I do to do that. The trouble is, is when um, I'm making people feel okay about themselves when, you know, maybe they've said or done something that isn't okay. And then you need to sort of be more Greta Thunberg, don't you? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you find that do you find that easy or is that a challenge to it's, it's become a challenge mm. more of a challenge because because I, I had these bad experiences of being a young woman and speaking up and having people react very negatively to that thinking okay this is the wrong thing so for years and it's all sort of tied up with feminist beliefs I thought no this is the right thing I must I, I must learn to be a sort of canny social actor and just keep everything together pull everything you know dampen down so i've become quite a good chair of meetings because i was very good at keeping everything so nobody got too combative partly because i hate it because i'm a sponge but you know <laughs> that was my idea of, of what was successful no one's raised their voice yeah but i've realized now that sometimes change needs 
those little ruptures in the social fabric. And I, 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 my task now is to be more tolerant of those when I need to be. Yeah, mm. and to not be always accommodating. Exactly. Or compromising or um, in deference to. That's what Greta Thunberg astounds me mm. with, her ability to stand on the world stage with the likes of Donald Trump. I wouldn't want to play down the um, difficulties that men have, but again, it does intersect with gender, I think, this one. Yeah, I think so. Because women are expected to keep everything smooth. So, Joanne, in the last poem, you reflected on, you know, being um, now an autistic woman and the uh, kind of um, aspirations you had um, trying to fit into a non-autistic world. Um, that's been the experience of so many of the mothers we've worked with. Mm. And um, certainly when my son was diagnosed, I remember Simon Baron-Cohen bringing out a book all about autism, his theory that autism was the extreme form of the male mm. brain. Um, I'd just be really interested to hear your perspective on why you think it's taken us so long to see autistic girls and women. Well, I think one of the things I look at, and I to my weird sisters, I, I look back at those canonical papers by Kanner and by Asperger. And Asperger explicitly said he'd never seen it in a girl. Or almost yeah. never. And he said this in the same paper where he described a mother as remarkably like her son. So he made this connection in his head. It was maleness, something to do with intelligence and autism. There was that triangle there, trifecta, whatever. And I think once you've decided that's what something is, that's what you'll look for and that's what you'll see. So, I mean, it's partly just sort of uh, availability error, bias, whatever, that um, if you think it's more common in boys, you won't look for it in girls. So it's partly sort of... Um, self that's the word self-perpetuating um view and i think also um why do children get referred is it it within a school thing is, is is it because someone's concerned about their welfare or is it because they're a glitch in the system and they're causing problems for whatever reason an autistic boy is more likely to be seen as disruptive than an autistic girl so he's more likely to trigger these alarms and also i think Perhaps more than we realise, we condition girls from out of the womb to be socially competent. Absolutely. And we penalise them more for their little mistakes. I mean, my, my memory of growing up is being constantly corrected. And there are lots of other women who um, have written about it, whether they're autistic or not, you know, talk about this. Like, I think that, that there's a phrase in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, yeah. when Scout talks about you could see a pink cotton penitentiary. <laughs> closing closing round her so it's sort of yeah. you know don't sit like that don't talk like that smile you're pretty when you smile don't shout don't be angry blah blah blah, blah. and so you know that's going to penetrate even an autistic head of course isn't it yeah. i mean we, we we the autism is just i sometimes describe uh the girl and anyone's upbringing but certainly my upbringing or a girl's upbringing as a kind of um informal applied behavior analysis yeah yeah do do this and you'll get cattle prod so you learn very early on not to do it i remember being told the phrase um young girls should be seen and not heard mm. it's wonderful isn't it yeah 
I didn't have that one, but I got that, you know, somehow it was worse if I looked cross than if a boy looked cross. And we don't want to over-genderise it either, no, I suppose. No, and, but, 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 but I think some of it's partly that um, we don't fit. And I think the prescriptions for women are incredibly detailed. Yeah. Actually, I mean, I wouldn't want to say that it isn't difficult in other ways for men. Yeah. But we have so much small print and it keeps changing. <laughs> and footnotes well. on the footnotes. Footnotes <laughs> on the footnotes, yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And it's sort of almost in and it's almost um small print in invisible ink. Yeah. You don't know you've transgressed it till oh, suddenly I'm I've done something wrong in this group of other women. I don't know what it is, but I can sense I've done it. Yeah. One of those other unspoken things that one of those meetings everyone else went to that I wasn't present at. Yeah, where they got the rule book. Where they got the rule book. Yes, yes, the the girly rule book. <laughs> so in thinking about, I, I, um, it leads me on to a question around identity, I suppose. I was working with a young woman yesterday and I was asking her for words that she would use to describe her, herself, her identity. And I asked her, it suddenly struck me as we were talking and I said, would you describe yourself as a girl? And this hadn't come up in all mm. the sessions I'd had as I worked with her. And she very definitely said no. So then we talked about that. But I, I, I guess it's thinking about what you would define your identity as. So in this um, talk, we've, we've discussed the fact that first and foremost, you're a writer, that you're Jewish, that you're a mother, a wife, a sister, a daughter, an Alice enthusiast, um, an autistic person, but uh, uh, and and something uh, another thing that we haven't talked about yet, but I know you have um, explored in an article that we've all read is uh, whether you would define yourself as disabled. I would, yes, you would. Okay, I, I would, and I think in that article I unwrap a lot of layers because the first thing you see in your head when you think of disabled you you think of the sort of um wheelchair stick person that you see on parking spaces and on toilet doors and obviously I'm not that I mean no one's that actually for a start people tend to have three dimensions but um, <laughs> <laughs> but that that isn't isn't me but I know that I think I do have some genuine impairment such as that feeling like you can't move your face. I would say that's an impairment or inability to transition from one state to another. You know, that, that, that's a pain. So on, on that level, I'd say I was impaired, but I'd also say I was disabled if you look at the social model of disability because I have to move through a world that doesn't accommodate me. And the other thing I like about just describing myself as disabled even though it brings all all the stigma and suspicion it always comes with suspicion is that it enables you know solidarity with a wide group of people and i and i think you know much more powerful and much more visible if we if we walk forward together i mean obviously we don't totally understand each other's experiences i don't know what it's like to be a non-autistic person with cerebral palsy for example i wouldn't pretend to but we do have some sort of um experiences in common and some interests in common so it, it's a kind of political act in a way to describe myself as disabled yeah it's it's certainly an issue we talk about with our young people mm. a lot it, it, in terms of helping them have a clear sense of their own identities actually mm. 
isn't it? Um, and um, how they would describe themselves to somebody else or how they would want to be defined. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, a lot of people see it as a, a negative thing or derogatory. Yeah. I don't. It's just a description of someone with a non-standard body or a non-standard body mind, to use a more recent word. And uh, and I don't think there's anything, there's any, I, I, I don't think it has a negative value. It may have, you know, there, there may be things in life that's difficult, but I don't think it's not an insult. Because I, I think, you know, some high profile or autistic people, I'm not going to mention any names, have taken great exception to the idea that they're disabled. And it's up to them, but I also think that's incredibly unhelpful. It's, there's a difficulty, though, with language, isn't there? I remember mm. for many young people at school, we talk about them having an SCN, but I know that's sometimes used as a term of abuse. Yeah, you're a bit like, special. Yeah, yeah, you're special, and that became derogatory. Uh, so I suppose it's about reclaiming the language, isn't it? Yes. Because when you go from school to university, you then have a disabled student assessment. Yes, Yes, I, I, I had one for, for my PhD and that was a very strange experience. And I, and I realised I didn't know how to perform being a disabled person because, of course, I'd never done it before. <laughs> so you've got to find a new mask. <laughs> I've got to find a, 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 a new mask, yes, to, to, to get through this gate. It reminds me of when Pete spoke about, we, we talked about when he was diagnosed and mm -hmm. um, suddenly to be, have, to have that label yeah kind of at that age in your life i remember pete you said it, it, you were surprised by the impact of it for you yeah it was very on it <clears throat> i think i think this is this was something that i'd spent probably about 14 15 years um kind of really really wishing that i had you know because I, i'm really feeling that i needed because um because I, I essentially kind of knew that i was autistic but i think i wasn't prepared for the the aftermath and the emotion mm. the emotional aftermath of a diagnosis um and not just positive not just kind of oh what a sigh of relief oh i'm mm. so glad that you know i i'm 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 right and i should have been i should have been right because i know myself and i also my career is you know is built yeah. is built around uh, autism and education and young people and stuff mm. so um but it was it was really the the unexpected toll the the un packing of a diagnosis then had on me um because it was no longer a kind of it it was now a concrete thing it was now a yeah um it, it wasn't now a, a suspicion anymore you know it was well that, that's the fact and looking back then I sort of realized my whole whole life up until that stage you know was an identity crisis because I was so many different people to so many different people mm. in 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 that way um and and i think what really struck me that you were talking about as well um earlier um i think i i may have read it or you may have you may have spoken about it in another video was you kind of saying well you know i i i would mimic others i would use you know i would use um in sort of form of of uh, echolalia you know mm. to depending on who you were speaking to you would adjust your, yeah. your tone you would adjust the language that you use you know your um your expressions and stuff because your identity would kind of would would sort of be you would shapeshift maybe between the different companies that you yeah. were that you were spending time with um mm. and that really hit home to me because i felt well i'm so many different different people you know but who am I really and I yeah. think that was that was the real struggle that I had with the the diagnosis was who who am I really yeah. out of all these people am I one of them am I all of them I don't know <laughs> yeah 
I mean, the image that's come into my head now was that I was thinking about the emotions that went through my head in the taxi on the way back from being diagnosed. Mm. And um, I've got a crown on my front tooth, and my actual Im original tooth is sort of filed down almost to nothing. And there's the crown over it. Mm. And it it's almost like the personality you've got is the crown, and you, you, know, you feel as if you've filed the original you down to nothing. And suddenly you've, you've got to... Um, connect with this depleted self again and I think it's also extra there's an extra sort of thing for you which is that you are now your client group yes yeah, yeah. and the idea that that, that, that that there's the clients and then there's the professionals and the professionals are the ones who have the power the power to define the power to and you've moved yourself into this less powerful group and you've moved yourself out of I was talking about the are you in the first person plural because if you think about COVID briefings, the most vulnerable people in society, they're, all, they're somewhere else. They're not giving the briefing. They're not listening to the briefing. They're not being addressed. They're these people mm. we have to deal with. And you realise that you've now voluntarily, for some mad masochistic reason, put yourself into the category of them, of the people who are problems to be dealt with. And I remember mm. realising that and thinking, what have I done? <laughs> but it, it keeps bringing me back to that line from your poem I can't remember which poem it is when your mother says to you when you say you're four it isn't saying it that makes it true and no. it's that funny thing isn't it the language because I remember saying to Pete well you've always this yeah, is who it, you it, are exactly but the saying it, it it's extraordinary isn't yeah, it yeah I mean I have a thing about whether my autism walks into the room before I do and it's okay in a group like this where you actually know lots of autistic people and some of you are, but um, I don't always disclose it as I'm going through my, because I know that people will suddenly, I'll see them going, oh, I don't know how to talk to this person as if they suddenly need to go on a course <laughs> yeah. to know how to talk to me. And um, when uh, a few years ago, I did some creative writing workshops with autistic people. I needed a DBS check to work with vulnerable adults. And I thought, hmm. So do I need a DBS check to sit in a room with myself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because we we talk as if it's like as if a mother isn't also some mother's child. It's a very deep cleft in our minds. As if mm. being a service provider or a caretaker, you can't also be vulnerable. Yeah. And yet quite often they are the same person. We act as if they're not, but they are. And there's a real deep disconnect there. And I, I have a, an increasing um, level of discomfort with um, the notion that non-autistic people advise how to work with, support, teach, mm. um, care for autistic people. Uh, our, our team is quite healthily neurodiverse. Um, and I wouldn't want it any other way. In fact, we, we are going more towards neurodivergent, mm. um, uh, you know, advisors yeah. because otherwise it's it's patronising. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I had, you know, and this this was great. I had a very good, good review in the Times Literary Supplement for my book. And I'm glad it was a good review. But they didn't give it to a writer. They gave it to Francesca Happe. And she wrote a, re a really good review and so we, we talked afterwards and she was very complimentary about it and said, you know, uh, that it was making her think differently, which is great. I'm really happy yeah. about that. But I thought, why did you give my book to a psychologist? I mean, it's like sometimes you, you, you have events and 
you're expected to go on with a non-autistic professional. I mean, this hasn't happened to me too much. Like what comes, like your own view of your life doesn't count as knowledge. Mm -hmm. Unless it's interpreted. Yes, it's got to be validated. lens. Yeah, yeah, by someone who's been on a course. <laughs> <laughs> to learn about you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a wow. kind of, um, I think it's analogous to that post-colonial idea of subalternity and can the subaltern speak? Oh. Can you speak for yourself yeah, or are you always yeah. described? And if you take the language of description to describe yourself, is it your own voice anymore? So I, I, I refused in, in the book to do, do that standard thing in the introduction of saying autism is often described as a... because I thought, you know, screw those. Those aren't my words. You can look them up anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to do a shout out. Your, your, your poem... Um... Just finally, Alice's Antism. I, I went to see a resource space recently and um, there was a charming young man on um, Special Interest Friday sharing the autism joy with his knowledge about ants. Oh. And um, I am going to send him your poem. But I, oh. I think he would love you to know that um, he was explaining to the class that uh, uh, on all the continents all over the world, there's only one continent where there are no ants, and that's in Antarctica. Mm. And Antarctica used Ant to be called, mm. yes, <laughs> Antarctica used to be called Tika until they realised there were no ants, and then they called it Ants Antica. Uh, I thought that was just superb. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't know much about ants. I, I always know that I'm pleased to see them even if they're inside the house and I probably should be horrified. They are extraordinary animals, I know that. I hope you enjoyed that wonderful conversation as much as I did. As usual, we end the podcast with recommendations and this week, of course, we are recommending the work of Joanne Lindbergh. The Autistic Alice, along with her other works of fiction and non-fiction, are available on Amazon and you can access more information about her and her work on the website joannelindbergh.net. There is a link to her website and to the Autistic Alice on Amazon in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to all of our Drumbeat Autism Outreach online content, including our website, Facebook page and Instagram. We're in the process of recording some more episodes, so we'll be back soon with even more great guests.